to be talking about God and science tonight. And this is a talk that uh, I, I co-developed with uh, a friend of mine named Dean Farmer. And uh, Dean is, a, um, is an attorney, uh, has a background in organic chemistry. And uh, also my wife, Anne Laurie, has made a lot of great contributions to the talk. So this is something that we started probably, um, I don't know, 20 years ago. And we keep, keep adding new things as we learn more. And this is a little bit about our background. So uh, I, uh, as um, Mike mentioned, am an engineer, and my career has principally been in artificial organs and artificial hearts. So that's an artificial heart. Uh, and then Dean, as, as I mentioned, is an organic chemist. So between the two of us, we found a lot of great material that I think helps us to address some of the questions. And really, my mission tonight is twofold. So if you're coming from a background where you... Um, you really have a lot of questions about how God and science fit together. You know, you, it, it's been an impediment to you really having faith in, in the God of the Bible. Then this talk is for you. It should really help you to at least clarify the questions and give you some ideas of what you can do next. Uh, if you have faith and um, this is just something that you're interested in, that's great. And you may be able to help other people who have you know, those sorts of needs. So, so I hope you'll enjoy it tonight. So, we're going to start off, uh, just a quick overview, is defining our terms. One of the big challenges in this whole debate between God and science is there's a lot of confusion uh, about terminology. So we're going to address that. We're going to talk uh, about the origin of life. That's a great model for us to start looking at evidence. And then the origin of the universe, and then some conclusions. Okay, so definition of terms. Science versus religion. Atheism versus creationism. And then the evolution, evolution versus the theory of evolution. You know, there's a lot of controversy that sort of swirls around these issues. So let's first talk about science versus religion. Uh, here's a quote from Albert Einstein. And what he said was, I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are details. So this is remarkable because, you know, as we think about Albert Einstein, probably one of the greatest minds in in science and, you know, theoretical physics, and yet he believed in God. Now, he did not believe in the same God that we think about in the Bible. He believed in the existence of a creator, not necessarily a personal God, but nonetheless, he was definitely convinced that there was a God. So is, is that possible? You know, can a scientist really believe in God? And the answer is yes. And there's, there's whole branches of science that were started by Bible-believing scientists. And you can see the list here. So, you know, in fact, when you think about it, the, the idea that there's a God and that there's order in the universe is actually motivation for trying to unlock the secrets of the universe. Because you think there must be cause and effect, and there's order there to to examine and to come up with some sort of principles by which it works. So it's a relatively new idea that scientists ought to be atheists. You know, Maybe on your campus, that's kind of the way science is presenting itself, is it's either science or God. That's not really the way science has uh, uh, progressed over most of the centuries uh, here. Okay, so 
let's ask the question, what has science taught us? Uh, there is overwhelming evidence from science that the universe began about 15 billion years ago, that the earth was formed four and a half billion years ago, and relatively quickly life began three and a half to four billion years ago. And then what we consider man, first hominids, became established about 4.2 million years ago. Modern man, what we call Homo sapiens, about 160,000 years ago. And then agriculture, in other words, the domestication of animals, you know, farming began about 10,000 to 15,000 years ago. So these are some of the things that I think we can really hang our hat on and help us to, uh, to frame some of the discussions as we go forward. And just to get you thinking about how Bible and science can, can be working together, the Bible is unique in that it presents an absolute truth. In contrast, science does not recognize an absolute truth. Science is progressing by putting forth theories and then trying to prove them, and then when there's more knowledge, the, the old theory goes away, and there's a new theory put forth. And that's a fundamental difference between God and uh, between Bible and science. The Bible actually complements science. The Bible addresses different questions. The Bible addresses the why and the who questions. Why am I here? See, science is not going to answer that one for you. You know, who created me? The Bible talks about that. Science, in contrast, addresses the what and when questions. You know, what are we made of? You know, when did this happen? They're different. And they fit together. We need both. And then finally, the Bible is not a science textbook. You know, it might surprise you that the, the words DNA, or the acronym DNA, doesn't appear in the Bible. Is anyone surprised by that? You know, maybe Moses, you know, if he'd read, you know, DNA, what is that? You know, it would have made no sense to him. So it isn't in the Bible, but the Bible does touch on scientific matters in a very embryonic form. And when it does, those statements are accurate. And we'll talk about that. So there's nothing in the Bible that contradicts science. And that's actually uh, pretty cool when you, when you start digging into it. Okay, so here's an example that I'm going to give of how the Bible uh, supports science. And uh, it's the topic of how to control communicable disease. And there's a lot in the Bible about this. In, in Numbers 19, there's, there's a passage, and this is a quote from it. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. He must purify himself with the water on the third and seventh day, take some hyssop, dip it in the water, and sprinkle the tent and furnishings and the people who were there. So if you touch something that was dead... You needed to get this particular plant and dip it in water and sprinkle whatever had been contaminated. And, you know, the people of Israel did this. They may not have understood why, but that was the command of God. Okay? So now, uh, fast forward uh, a while. So 1450 BC. Now we're in 1847. And there was a big problem. In, in Vienna, uh, there was a hospital, and here women would, women would come in to bear children, and there was a very high mortality rate. 
So one in six women would die before they left the hospital. And a lot of the doctors were you know, trying to figure out, well, what's going on here? And they had different theories about it. They said, well, this woman was constipated. She died. She was so afraid of having a baby, she died. Or there's some poisonous air in this hospital that is just responsible for all this. And there were different theories, but it didn't change. And then along comes this doctor, Ignaz Semmelweis. And he would watch what was going on. And, you know, he'd come in in the morning. And unfortunately, because the women were dying the night before, they, they had to do autopsies. And the doctor would do the autopsy on the patient and then immediately go and deliver a baby for the next patient without washing their hands. Because, of course, nobody knew anything about germs in those days. There was no reason to wash your hands. It's an inconvenience. So, you know, you just sort of dash forward and go and take care of the next patient. And so he said, well, maybe there's something to do with death, you know, causing illness. So he said, well, in this hospital, we're going to wash our hands after we do the autopsy, before we start the next delivery. And then immediately the death rate drops from 18% to 1% in the hospital. And, you know, this was very controversial. People did not accept it. Doctors were like, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to wash my hands. You know, and it wasn't until quite a bit later that, you know, he stopped being persecuted for his beliefs. But he he established basically the principles today that we would call the germ theory of disease or the the, uh, principles of, uh, you know, aseptic technique. Right. And what was interesting is that there are certain chemicals that are widely used to develop antimicrobial uh, cleansers and detergents. And thymol, which is at a very high concentration in the hyssop plant, is one of those. Mm -hmm. So God had figured it out long before science had, and now, of course, we enjoy the benefit of it. So very interesting. And the Bible is full of examples of things like this. And here's a list of some of these things. And you can study it out in your Bible. Um, you know, for example, seaworthy design. Genesis 6.15 gives the, the ratio of length, height, and width for a seagoing vessel. And it turns out that naval architects have proven those are the ideal dimensions for any large ship. And so whether it's an oil tanker or an aircraft carrier, everything is designed according to that profile. That's the most stable design for a ship. And that's the dimension that Noah was told to build his ark. So you go figure, but there's, there's lots of interesting stuff like that in the Bible. All right, atheism versus creationism. Well, you know, it's important to know that not every scientist is an atheist, and not every Bible believer is a creationist. These are just minority positions way at the end of the spectrum. Okay? And... You know, neither is very well supported by science. You know, if you really look at the arguments they put forth, um, I think you'll see that. So let's let's ask some questions first. What are the positions of the atheist and creationist just on the origin of the universe? So one of the most popular or well, you know, uh, well-known atheists is Richard Dawkins, who's an evolutionary biologist from England. He's written a series of books, and here's a quote from one of his books. He says, In the universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, and other people are going to get lucky. 
and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Okay, so this is a rather dark view, I would have to say. But uh, it's a pretty good summary of what, what atheism stands for. So the atheist basically says, there is no God. That's the position. And basically saying that there's no evidence for design in the universe. Just saying it's, it's a product of blind physical forces. And he argues against any absolute moral standard. There's no right or wrong. It's just things are just happening randomly. Okay. And I think that it's in huge contrast to what the Bible teaches. So in Romans 1, verse 18, the Bible teaches that there is tremendous evidence for a God, for design and purpose in the universe. And it says that that evidence is simply suppressed. Okay. So this points out one of the major problems with atheism, which is the weight of the scientific evidence is actually against it. You know, we can find many examples of design and purpose in the universe, and they directly contradict the position here. Uh, the, other, the other problem with atheism, atheism, when you think about it, is atheism says there is no God. And so that's, in philosophy, what's called an anti-position. Okay, so it would like, be like me saying uh, there is no other person named, uh, named Howard at UVM. Okay, so I would have to go out and find, I would have to go and, and look for Howard or someone named Howard at UVM. And if I did find it, I find such a person, I would be, I would be proven wrong. So now, if I'm going to say there's no God in the universe, the only way I could prove that is to go all around the universe looking for God. I mean, in a sense, I would have to be God to prove my position. And this is a very awkward sort of an argument to try to put forth. And so the atheist position, um, we'll talk a little bit more about, but... But hold on to that point about blind physical forces and that there's no, at the bottom, no design and no purpose. We'll see if that's really what our evidence from science uh, teaches us. All right, so then at the other end of the spectrum, creationism. Uh, this guy, his name was James Usher. He was an Irish archbishop, lived... Um, uh, 1581 to 1656, and he, he authored this book, which uh, is shown here, and he put forth uh, an argument that the first day of creation was Sunday, the 23rd of October, in 4004 B.C. Okay? And the way he did that was he took all the genealogies in the Bible and he stuck them end to end. So he went from Adam up to Jesus, and he said, okay, well, that's a certain period of time, and then so on and so forth. And so the problem with that is that the Bible was never really intended to be 
to be analyzed that way. And in fact, the Bible uses a lot of shortcuts. It would say Jesus is the son of David. Right? Does that mean that Jesus is literally the son of David? No, actually not. There were many generations between them. And in fact, that's the problem. Genealogies aren't complete. And, you know, the Bible has a very different view about the date of creation. And if you've read the book of Genesis, it just says, in the beginning. That was the date of creation, right? In the beginning. So, um, you know, what is the... What does science tell us? Well, science is telling us that, you know, the universe uh, 15 billion years ago, Earth four and a half billion years old. So, you know, when people who assume this position are trying to, you know, reckon that with what science is teaching, it's very awkward. You know, particularly when we look at things like uh, geology. So, you know, if you go to the Grand Canyon... The, uh, the sedimentary rock in the Grand Canyon is about 16,000 feet thick. And just on average, over the surface of the Earth, it's about 6,000 feet. So, if, if the Earth was created in 4,000 B.C., then there would have been about 6,000 years to today. So how do you lay down that much sedimentary rock in 6,000 years? You know, rock won't, e- uh, won't even form that fast. It's... it's it's difficult. And in many cases, the folks who hold it to this position would say that that all got laid down in one great flood. They connect it with the story about Noah. And it's tough to, to then answer the question of, well, what about all these fossils that we find? You know, where the fossils of the oldest animals are on the bottom and then the newest on the top. You know, how would you get that sort of order if it was just one big flood and everything was being washed, you know, washed out? So it's a very tough position to hold on to. And, you know, I, I think that I want to be careful here because I don't think that it's unreasonable to, uh, to say, okay, the Bible says that the earth was created in six days. And I, I know many people who believe that, that it's six literal days. And they, they hold to that. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable and justifiable position. You know, you're, you're taking the Bible literally. But I, I would just say that the Bible is, is filled with what I would call figurative language. So if you look at the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, uh, many passages, highly, highly figurative. And what I see in the, in the account in the book of Genesis is that there was an orderly progression to creation that, you know, for example, the first thing that happened was there's light, right? There's darkness, you know, and, and it's, that's, that would be important to have before life, right? Because you can't have photosynthesis without that. And, um, you know, the idea of God's concept of time is very different from ours. So, you know, at Second uh, Peter 3, verse 8, it just says, With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So God is not bound by the same concepts of time as we are. And so he can write in terms of days in any way he wants. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the same concept of time that we have. And, you know, the, the, the honest truth is that the, um, that the creation of the universe is not something that is fully understood. It's, a, it's not an experiment you can replicate in a lab. Uh, 
right? And it's something that we have to approach with an open mind and try to understand as science teaches us more, um, you know, we'll probably get a clearer picture of it. But in my opinion, question about how old the earth is is not a salvation issue. You know, you can believe what you want to believe. You can take the creation account in the Bible as you as your conscience dictates. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be a salvation issue, whether whether or not you're right with God. So, um, you know, I, I I just want you to know I respect your position if, if you differ from mine. Uh, all right. So the next question is, what about evolution versus the theory of evolution? So evolution is definitely a controversial subject, and some people will speak about evolution. Uh, as though it accounts for all forms of life that we see in the world today. And the basic of their argument is, evolution is true, so who needs God? It's often framed that way. However, the fact of evolution should not be confused with the theory of evolution. So what is the fact of evolution? Life forms have developed and diversified into new life forms. And this evolution continues to occur today. Okay. The theory of evolution is life arose from non-life, and all life forms today can be accounted for by evolutionary change from simpler to more complex organisms. All right. So the the positions here, I think, are different. Uh, there's ab- there's ample evidence that evolution is responsible for the development of many life forms and, di- and the diversity of life. But I don't think that um, there's scientific proof that evolutionary principles account for all life or the origin of life. That's where it gets a little sticky, a little difficult. And I think the main areas that I would say are, again, you know, how did life originate from non-life? And then how do we account for what's called the irreducible complexity of certain certain organisms. And we'll talk a little bit about those in turn. So, you know, when Darwin was was doing his investigations, uh, he he did not have the same tools that we have today. So he had a keen eye and he was careful at recording his observations, you know, his book uh, of of what he saw as he sailed and visited different islands. But he put forth this idea if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. So I think one way to think about this is that he put forth a a theory that basically showed how more successful animals would go on to reproduce and be basically superseding those animals that were less fit. And that was his basic principle of how species would change. But the survival of the fittest does not explain the arrival of the fittest. And let's, let's take an example here. Um, this, this is called the bombardier beetle. And what's happening here is somebody is actually pinching the back leg of this beetle with a forceps. Do you see that? And it is actually steering this, this jet of hot gas down to try to just chase off this this attack. 
And it's like 100 degrees C. You know, it's like boiling water that it's, it's putting out of its tailpipe. It's an amazing organism, right? And so the question is, how did this thing arrive? And, well, people have used biochemistry, and they've, they've started to figure out, well, what, what this beetle actually does is it has these two tanks that generate these two chemicals. And then, at a particular point, they have to mix together, and they come out. It's like rocket fuel, right? That's how it works. And so you have the two reservoirs that are, that are together, but you have to actually have to um, keep them separate, right? And if they combine, you have to have an inhibitor at the front of the tailpipe <laughs> to keep... Keep it, the beetle from exploding, okay? And then at the end of the tailpipe, you have to have an anti-inhibitor. You have to have some chemical that reverses the inhibitor so the explosion can occur at the right place. Okay, so there are four essential things. Compound A, compound B, inhibitor, anti-inhibitor. So let's think about it. If the beetle had only, um, only one of the chemicals, would it be... Would it have any evolutionary advantage? No. Okay. What if it had both chemicals in separate tanks? No. What if it had both chemicals in the same tank? It would explode. So it would not have any evolutionary advantage. Okay. So what if there was no anti-inhibitor then? Right. So then it would not have an advantage. So you had to have all four. So this is the irreducible complexity of this beetle's organ, you had to have all four of these things at the same time to get an advantage. So the question is, how, how does a random process of genetic mutations generate that? And some people have different ideas about how that could be true, but it's a challenge okay, for the people who, who basically claim that evolution can be responsible for the arrival of the fittest. Okay, so let's, let's move on to some, some other things to talk about. Um, classic arguments about the existence of God from the viewpoint of design. And uh, there was this guy named William Paley who lived about 1800, and he wrote a book called Natural Theology, and he had some examples that were based on the pocket watch. This is how he tried to explain it. He said, The universe or life clearly has design and purpose displayed within it. The best explanation for design and purpose is an intelligent designer. Therefore, the universe or life is the result of an intelligent designer. That's a pretty simple argument. And, you know, let's kind of walk through it. And uh, imagine you're out in the woods, you're hiking or walking on a trail, and you find a, a watch, maybe not a pocket watch, maybe it's a Fitbit, for all I know, you know, <laughs> and it's on the ground, or it's, it, it's, it's in the leaves. You know, wh- what would you say is the most likely explanation of how that got there? Yeah, you think, well, somebody dropped it, you know, but more fundamentally, you would say, well, this was created by somebody, 
And then somebody was wearing it and someone dropped it. And if I came up to you, Mike, and I said, you know, uh, Mike, nobody had to make that. It was just a process where somehow uh, the silica in the earth, you know, came up and um, it somehow got formed into the glass face of the watch. And then there was gold ore, you know, that came up and and that somehow, uh, you know, formed the, the, the bezel of the watch. And, and that's how that watch got there. You know, what would you say? Right, you'd say, like, what are you smoking? You know, that's crazy. Or if I said, you know, Chris, Chris, that was, that was made by squirrels. <laughs> the squirrels got together and they made that watch. You'd be like, whoa, you're nuts, right? You're nuts. There's no way that could happen. And uh, so, you know, I could also say, well, you know, that nobody had to make the watch. It's just always been there. Right? Then you would say, well, wouldn't the battery have run out by now <laughs> if it had always been there? Right? How could it still be ticking? Right? It, it had to have an origin. It, it can't just always have been there. And so this, this is a very compelling argument when you think about it. When you see order, but also complexity, and you know, a, a clear evidence of design, is, uh, is very much a sign that there's a designer. But, you know, today we have a different angle on this argument, and it's actually coming from uh, what's called information theory. Now, you know, some, just something that has order to it does not necessarily mean it has a lot of information. So think about a snowflake. You have a lot of snow up here in Vermont, I'm told. Uh, so a snowflake, snowflake is very orderly. You know, you maybe know that each one is unique. And yet, there's no encoded information in the snowflake that you can use to like, create a protein or something like that. Right? That's not the way snowflakes are put together. They grow um, by crystal growth, uh, which is an inherent property of water. And there's no intelligent cause needed for a snowflake to form in its, you know, its beautiful shape. But... Then think about order with information. So there are certain rock formations that look like human faces. At least there was one in New Hampshire. Does anyone recognize the one on the left? Old Man of the Mountain, part of Cannon Mountain. And in 2003, this thing fell off. Okay, But before that happened, uh, you would look at that and you would say, Oh, isn't that cool? That looks like a man's face. Now, can anyone recognize the man? No, you're thinking, no, it's just a coincidence that that rock was eroded in a certain way and it looks like a human face. But what about on the right? What, what mountain is that? Mount Rushmore. Okay, can anyone tell me the, the four people who are carved into it? Right, you can immediately recognize them, right? Because someone put that information into their carving of the mountain. Right? And it would be obvious that that was not a result of some random process. Right? So that's just my point. Is a high level of information is associated with a high level of intelligence and an intelligent cause to create it. Okay? 
So that's my point here. But we're not just talking about mountains. We're going to be talking about life. Okay. So a lot of people, actually, this is a really good point. A lot of people like to talk about how life became highly developed life. They love to talk about evolution and so on. I don't actually think that's the most interesting question. I think the most interesting question is, how did you get from non-life to life? Because that's where you have to really address this issue of information. And the question is, is is life created or not created? And and we have to ask, well, how did life originate from non-life? How did complex order originate from disorder? How did complex information originate from non-information? And at this point in time, the origin of life is really the greatest area of difficulty for non-theistic evolutionists. And it is, it is interesting to read what's coming out in science when people are delving into these questions. Okay, so this is the, the experiment that we all heard about in high school, right? This is called um, the chemistry of origins. There's a lot of research that goes on in this. And these two guys won a Nobel Prize, Uri and Miller. I think they were from Chicago, if I'm not mistaken, right? Oh, yeah, Uh, in the 1950s. And they did this famous experiment that is often cited as the proof for the synthesis of life. So they had this this jar kind of a thing, and they they put in gases. They put in um, what they believed to be the original gases on Earth. I think it was um, ammonia, methane, and hydrogen. And they zapped it with electricity over a certain period of time, and in the end, they found out that there was this gook, this precipitate in the bottom of the, um, of the jar, and about 98% of it was just tar, but then there was about 2% amino acids, which, you know, of course, there are some amino acids that are responsible uh, for the building block, you know, to be the building blocks of protein. And uh, so this... This is a, an interesting experiment, and a lot of people have then used this sort of approach to try to reproduce other building blocks of life. And uh, most scientists would agree that today uh, they didn't pick the right gases. They, they actually picked what's uh, with the hydrogen would be a reducing atmosphere. It's, it's known now that the Earth had an oxidizing atmosphere, which would rapidly break down anything that was created. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about these molecules that are the building blocks of life. So amino acids, we mentioned earlier, uh, they form in um, uh, chains of like 100 long. Uh, They are responsible for both structure and uh, in our bodies and also, of course, enzymes. Uh, They have two different ends, the amino group, the carboxyl group, and they also have different forms. So there's uh, this concept of chirality, I think is, is the, the term. So you have the D and the L form of each amino acid. You have to have the right one to get the function. And then, of course, you have the bases of DNA and RNA, the purines and pyrimidines, carbohydrates and lipids. So these are the building blocks of life. The simplest cells have to have these four types of molecule. All right, so let's just focus a little bit on, on protein. Uh, because it has been theorized uh, sort of indirectly by Darwin and then more specifically in the 1920s by a scientist named Oprin that there was this primordial soup with you know, all of these um, molecules floating around and somehow they got together in the right order. Well, let's talk about mathematical probability of us being able to form a hundred amino acid sequence as a protein. 
So, uh, we can look at it in terms of mathematical probability. So there's two forms for each amino acid, the D or the L. So if you had a bunch of them, there's a 50% chance that if you grab two and stuck them together, you would have the right form. Uh, there's multiple functional groups um, on, on amino acids for connection. Again, a 50% chance, putting it together the right way. And there's about 20 proteogenic amino acids. So there's about a 5% chance of getting the right protein to put the information you need into that chain at the right place. So if those are the probabilities of one connection, then you multiply them together. So there's 0.5 times 0.5 times 0.05 is 0.0125. And then if you have 100 amino acids that all have to be connected that way, you have to multiply that by itself 100 times. And so the number that you get is rather small. <laughs> it's, it's basically on the order of 10 to the negative 191 power, which and I can't really visualize that number, but I could visualize a different sort of situation where if I covered the surface of the United States, this is the continental United States, uh, only with, with quarters, only one layer thick, okay, that would require 15 quadrillion quarters. <laughs> and if I placed a red dot on only one of those before I spread them out, and then, you know, I asked one of you to go out, and, you know, I stirred them all up, and I said, well, just go out, Sophie, and just find the one. On the first try, pick up the one that has the red dot on it. <laughs> then that probability would be 1 in 10 to negative 19. Okay? So that, obviously, if you multiply that by itself 10 times, would be the same probability as the first protein being constructed by random processes. And so if you're not going to accept that Sophie could find that quarter, then you shouldn't accept that the first protein could be formed by that kind of a process. So it isn't just improbable, it's ridiculous. We wouldn't accept it. And there are scientists who comment on this. They say the current scenario of the origin of life is about as likely as the assemblage of a 747 by a tornado whirling through a junkyard. <laughs> and then another person, uh, no, it wasn't a warm little pond. So even if, even if you're going to say, okay, there was this warm pond with all this stuff, well, it, it was a raging tempest. You know, you were having meteorites crashing into the earth, you had lightning, and it was all being vaporized and thrown around. So it wasn't an ideal situation for molecules to hold together. So this is very challenging. How did the first life form? And so there have been various ideas about it. And, um, you know, how would you get all of that together? Um, you know, it's very, very challenging. There's another example um, from, from language. And uh, I'm not going to belabor it, but, you know, let's say you have a sentence that you write, very dangerous, okay? And if that's the, if that's the transmission that you're sending out, uh, what are all the ways that it could, it could get corrupted? Well, if you, if you have letters in two forms, it could be letters that are upside down or right side up, okay? So there it is, very dangerous written upside down. Can you make that out? Can you still understand that message? 
Kind of, if you read it the right way. Okay, what about if you form the bonds incorrectly? Okay. Now it's sideways. You can kind of read that. All right. These are all happening separately. Now, what happens if you put them in the wrong sequence? Well, that would spell something totally different. It could be nervous grading. So, now combine them all at the same time. All three problems. So the, you can see that the, the information can't be randomly put together um, and, and preserved. Uh, and then you could say, well, what about all the other languages? Because, of course, you have different, different molecules. So what about the Latin alphabet? What about um, you know, the Greek letters, et cetera, et cetera? So you know, it all just becomes very improbable that you could create an intelligent sentence randomly. Okay. So, well, some people will say, well, well, Howard, come on. I mean, you had all this time for this to happen. Sure, it's improbable. But, you know, if I go to buy a lottery ticket every day, eventually I'm going to win it, right? Eventually I'll have to win it. Well, maybe I don't have enough time. Maybe if I could live for a billion years and I bought a lottery ticket every day and I could finally win it, right? Well, maybe I could, but... That's not the situation with the way the Earth uh, came together, right? The fact is, the appearance of the first bacteria and algae is three and a half to four billion years ago. The Earth was only formed four and a half billion years ago, so there was only 500 million to a billion years for the Earth to cool and for life to evolve. And some scientists have said, well, it have taken 800 million years just to cool down and then a billion years to produce a cell. So you just don't have enough time. Uh, and, and nobody really has a good answer for this. You know, the, the relatively short period of time um, for life to start and, um, and the complexity of starting life. So the best answer so far, you ready? This is a really good answer for how life started on the Earth is that it came from outer space. <laughs> right, now this guy was really smart, Francis Crick, right? Uh, he discovered DNA. And he, he basically said, well, the only explanation I can give you is that it must have come from some other part of the universe. And it used space travel to colonize the Earth. Well, I mean, that to me takes a lot of faith to believe that. Uh, so, you know, the point is that... Uh, The people who leave God out of the picture have no plausible answers to these questions. And everything certainly points to a non-naturalistic intervention. Or, in other words, for a miracle. Alright, so we've talked a bit about life and how it started. Let's take a little time to look at another um, argument for the existence of God based on the origin of the universe. And these are some classic things that... um, that are put forth. So the cosmological argument and the anthropic principle. So let's start with the cosmological argument. Uh, well, we have to start with the, pre- the premise that the universe exists. Does anyone want to argue with that? Anyone not believe? Okay. So we're not going to have a problem with that. So, so he's going to talk, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how how to explain the existence of the universe, whether or not it had a beginning or no beginning. And I think we touched on this a little bit. You know, the, the laws of thermodynamics uh, stay basically in a closed system. 
energy and mass are conserved. And the other law is that the entropy of the universe increases. Okay, so the basic point is that if the universe had had no beginning, then by now, all of the stars should have burned out and just be cold, hard rocks. Because there's no way that you could have anything but just a sort of uniform distribution of, of energy across the universe. It would all become very disorganized. Uh, so it had to have a beginning. And then the question is, well, is that beginning caused or uncaused? And, you know, it's interesting. You know, if you claim to be a scientist, you generally have the concept of cause and effect as, you know, one of your core tenets. And that's what science is based on. Every effect has a cause. And so it really isn't, it isn't reasonable to think that our, the beginning of the universe was uncaused. And then you ask the question, well, if it was caused, was it a personal or impersonal cause? So here we ask the question, well, if the universe did not have a personal cause, then how can we account for all the elements of personality in the universe? You know, things like love, hate, music, art. You know, where did, where did that come from? How would that have been, you know, somehow originating from nothing? But something that wasn't personal. So the argument says, well, the universe does exist. It had a beginning. It was caused. And it had a personal cause. In other words, God. So that's the cosmological argument. And it is compelling. Uh, the other thing to think about is what's called anthropic principle. It's not really a theory. It's just a way of looking at information that we have about the universe. And basically the point of it is that it it would appear that the universe is fine-tuned to allow life on Earth. And you can look at the list of of different uh, constants or parameters, and if they were off by, you know, even as much as a tenth of a percent, or up to ten percent, it would be impossible for life to exist on our planet. And there's 55 of these distinct parameters that scientists have um, identified. So, again, using probability, the probability is 1 in 10 to the 69th power. That you could, by random, uh, you know, sort of organization of these parameters, come up with the ideal situation for life. Well, the problem is that the best we know, there's 10 to the 22 planets in the universe. So, it's a much less than one chance in 100 billion trillion trillion that even one such planet would occur anywhere in the universe that could support life. Now, I, I'm super thrilled, you know, to keep up with the news from science, and I hope, I hope that they could find a planet that can support life. And if they do, that still wouldn't be a reason not to believe in God, right? It doesn't necessarily follow God doesn't exist. It just says it's very unlikely that that can happen um, Anywhere in the universe. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, I gave this talk uh, at Harvard and somebody stood up and said, well, what about string theory? And I was like, well, I don't know anything about string theory. Um, so you're going to have to ask somebody else about that. But then later on, I have a friend who's a physicist. And I said, hey, you know, tell me about string theory. And like, how does that possibly bear upon this? And he goes, oh, yeah. The idea is you have an infinite number of universes. Okay, so 
if you have that many universes, surely there must be one universe that could have, you know, this one planet in it that could support life. And I said, well, you know, do you believe that? And he goes, well, so far, we've only been able to discover one universe. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. So I guess that not really answering the question. It's not really giving us a good idea. But it is pretty cool to think about, you know, an infinite number of universes. Maybe maybe that's what's uh, going to be found. Who knows? Um, but, you know, the point of it is here uh, that this is a very compelling argument for the existence of God. Here is cosmological proof of the existence of God. The design theory of Paley, updated and refurbished. The fine-tuning of the universe provides prima facie evidence of deistic design. Take your choice, blind chance that requires multitudes of universes or design that requires only one. Many scientists, when they admit their views, incline towards the teleological or design argument. This is written by a a famous scientist. So, um, so what have we done tonight? Hopefully I haven't put you to sleep. Hopefully you're still with me here. Uh, But I'll tell you what I tried to do was to find some of the key issues and questions bearing upon the existence of God. We tried to clear some of the rubble out of the way, some of the confusion and controversy. And I think we've also shown that science and God are very compatible. And we've looked at some of the arguments based on science for the existence of God. So what are we going to do with this? Well, I hope that you will all think for yourselves. Very important. You have to make your own decision based on the evidence. And uh, you know, I think Mike pointed out earlier this, this concept of faith. Well, we need faith no matter which explanation we choose to believe for the origins of the universe and life. And so my question would be, which takes more faith, the atheist or the Bible's position? It's an interesting question. And you know, I do admire the faith of some atheists. I really do. It takes a lot of faith to believe what they believe. Uh, So, the conclusions. It makes sense to believe in God. And that's because God and science are friends. They're not enemies. You should be secure in your faith. Don't be intimidated by scientists who have already made a willful decision to deny the existence of God. Uh, A lot of cases, you know, uh, it is oftentimes a moral argument, a moral issue that they don't want to address. Um, the scientist has the least excuse for not believing in God. And I, I, I see this all the time in my work. You know, when I'm working on these artificial organs and trying to, even in a very simple way, you know, reproduce some functionality that the human body has, I think, like, there's no way we'll ever be able to rival what, you know, the human heart can do. You know, there's no way you can make a mechanical object that, that does all the heart does. Um, It's a product of God, God's design. Uh, So scientists have a unique privilege of seeing that and learning about that. And keep asking questions and looking for answers. There are lots of resources for further study. And, uh, you know, I do have a reading list, which is over on the table. And feel free to pick one of those up or we could talk afterwards. But there's tons of stuff you could be reading to look into and answer these questions for yourselves. So I want to just thank you for your attention. And uh, for coming tonight, I hope you enjoyed it. hope it stimulated your thinking and that uh, you will take your questions and, and really go after, you know, trying to find answers for them. So thank you. Thank you.